2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC.
1: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
2: In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapon.
0: The first warp spasm seized Cucullin and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and his joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot shook like a tree in the flood or a reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin so that his feet and shins and knees switched to the rear and his heels and calves switched to the front. The bald sinews of his calves switched to the front of his shins. Each big knot the size of a warrior's bunched fist. His face and features became a red bowl. He sucked one eye so deep into his head that a wild crane couldn't probe it onto his cheek out of the depths of his skull. The other eye fell out along his cheek, his mouth weirdly distorted. His cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared, his lungs and liver flapping in his mouth and throat. His lower jaw struck the upper, a lion-killing blow. His heart boomed loud in his breast like the baying of a watchdog. Malignant mists and spurts of fire flickered red in the vaporous cloud that rose boiling above his head, so fierce was his fury. The hair of his head twisted like the tangle of a red thorn bush stuck in a gap. The hero halo rose out of his brow, long and broad as a warrior's whetstone, long as a snout, and he went mad rattling his shields, urging on his charioteer and harassing the hosts. Then tall and thick, steady and strong, high as the mast of a noble ship, rose up from the dead center of his skull, a straight spout of black blood, darkly and magically smoking." I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen
1: mcmenemy and this is Ancient History Fangirl.
0: So that quote is from the Thomas Kinsella translation of the Tane, or The Cattle Raid of Cooley from the Ulster Cycle. It's one of a series of about 80 folktales that are iconic to Ireland. So this episode, I don't know how to explain this episode, Jen. It's, been, <laughs> it's a mythology episode. It is, it's a mythology episode. We told the story of the first half of Caesar's life and career, and then hit the part where Caesar goes to Gaul and then got kind of re- wrapped around the axle over how most of what we know about the Gallic Wars comes from Caesar's commentaries and the problems we had with telling the story from the point of view of the victor. So we decided
1: to let the Gauls speak for themselves through indirect evidence, archaeology, other ancient writers who visited them as chroniclers and not conquerors, and myths and law codes that come down to us today from other Celtic societies. All of these sources are imperfect. The ancient chroniclers are outsiders, usually Greek and Roman, who bring their own prejudices to their writing. The archaeology tells us only an incomplete picture that's open to misinterpretation, and the myths we have are generally not from Gaul. They're from other places like Ireland or Scotland or Wales or England, and they were written down centuries after the Gallic Wars by Christian scribes. You're looking at stories that can't be reliably dated to a specific time or place of pre-Romanized Gaul. They're a millennia after the fact, geographically distant, and sometimes viewed through a Christian lens.
0: Even so, we look at this story The cattle raid and the Ulster Cycle, and we see a tantalizing glimmer of ancient Gaul. And that's why we wanted to tell this particular story to you. As we've said before, the story we're about to tell you is Irish mythology. It was written down for the first time, I think around the 1100s AD by Irish Christian scribes in the old Irish language. But it's most likely from a much older pre-Christian oral tradition that existed in Ireland for a long time before that, maybe for centuries. The Ulster Cycle is important to Irish and Celtic identity today. And like we said, it's very Irish. The place names are Irish. The language is Irish. Some characters are based on real people from ancient Irish history. We do not negate its Irishness, and we don't want to negate its Irishness. That is certainly not our intention. A story with a history as long as this one has will naturally gain meaning and grow in meaning to the people who tell it at all points in history, and those meanings are completely valid.
1: So why are we telling you an Irish story in an episode about the Gauls in the middle of the Julius Caesar arc? Why, Jenny? Says the red-headed, green-eyed, girl named McMenemy whose Irish clan also is named Cassane. (laughs) We do have an Irish woman in our midst right now. Well, not really. You've got an American who has roots from Ireland, but I mean, the Irish would not consider me Irish.
0: Yeah, so we've got someone with Irish ancestry in our midst. We go into that at length in the previous episode, but the thumbnail version is that woven throughout this story are signifiers, little clues and callbacks that remind us of things found in the archaeology of the Gauls and things ancient writers, told us about them more than a thousand years before this story was written down. You can spot them if you know what to look for, which you will if you listen to the previous episode, and I will be pointing them out incessantly because that's what I will do.
1: You're going to be like Agrippina the Elder, never shutting up about her husband getting murdered.
0: It's the Gulls! There they are! (laughs) (laughs) If you have super strong feelings about this being an Irish story only, this may be not the episode for you. But it isn't a perfect lineup, but I specifically picked The Cattle Raid of Cooley because it has so many of these little clues, and we're operating under a theory in this episode that this story is older than you'd think, and if you know what to look for, it can draw back the curtain and give us an indirect glimpse of ancient Gaul. So what we're trying to do is triangulate the Gauls. We've got the archaeology, we've got ancient writers, they've all got something wrong with them, and now we're going to tell you this myth, which is not from Gaul, but it's the closest thing we have. That's the working theory. And just a heads up, we are going to rag on this a lot because that is what we do, but we rag because we love. We adore this story and we cannot stop talking about it. Absolutely. So here we go. It begins with a boy named Satanta. Like all great heroes, Satanta's birth was shrouded in myth and mystery. His mother was mortal. Her name was Deictine. And just so you know, this is the story where we earnestly try to pronounce things in Old Irish, and I don't know how this is going to go. We're going to mispronounce things a lot. Yeah, we're doing
1: our best. Um, We apologize if we get things wrong. I frequently can't pronounce things in English. I mean, frequently, I can't pronounce my own it's our name. There's a lot of M's in there.
0: <laughs> we are two people who cannot pronounce words and we have a podcast. We're the wrong people to be tackling this, but we're doing it anyway. So anyway, his mother was mortal. Her name was Deictine. Hopefully I pronounced that within the neighborhood of right. And she was both the sister of the King of Ulster and his charioteer, which is pretty badass. That's so badass, Jenny.
1: I just want to read a whole like novel about her life as sister of the King and charioteer. Someone should write that for me.
0: We need to Kickstarter. <laughs> fan fiction arm of the ancient history fangirl digital empire.
1: We do. I'm still desperate for people to tell us if they want us to write Supernatural meets what did we say? Agrippina the Younger and Julia La Villa Ghostbusters. It
0: was Supernatural meets the Children of
1: Germanicus Ghostbusters. Amazing. One day.
0: Yeah. So I'm trying to get through this story. I was about to tell you <laughs> about, <laughs> about Satanta's father, who some say was Lou, the god Luke. 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 Luch. I'm going to really screw up those back of the throat consonants. It's coming. Some say his father was Luch, the god of the sky. Luch was an Irish Celtic god associated with a lot of different things. Skill at crafts and the arts, truth and the law, and there's a harvest festival named after him. But he's also called Luch of the Long Arm, so named for his ability with the spear and sword. He was said to own an unstoppable blazing spear and a slingstone and a sword whose name translates to the answerer, which I think is a great sword name. And also supposedly he invented chess. So those are some things about Santanta's dad.
1: Amazing. I really love that sword name.
0: I'm going to name something to answer. It's going to be like my next car or something.
1: Anyway, Santanta was not raised by his real dad. He was fostered in a household of a number of people, one of them being Fergus, a guy who used to be king of Ulster, and we'll get to that in a second. Santanta's uncle, Concavor, the current king of Ulster, fostered three times 50 boys or 150 boys who were the sons of lesser kings. These boys all played together on the plains of Vonka, Conquivore's capital with their hurling sticks and balls. And I have to say, when we were talking about this myth, it feels like concavore is kind of like Achilles' father, Peleus. He's got all of these children of lesser sons that he's fostering to build an army. Is Tomta going to be the Achilles of this story, Jenny?
0: Yeah, I've seen him referred to as the Irish Achilles, and there are tons of parallels. Amazing. So, right, sidebar, I think this is hurling, which is one of Ireland's national sports. If you're Irish, I'm sure you know about about this, or if you are from Europe and watch the sport, you probably know about this. I am American. We do not know about this sport. It's played with a ball and a stick, and there's like a net on one end of the stick. So the sticks kind of look like lacrosse sticks, but it's different shaped net. And if you watch people play it, this is a really fast paced game, and it looks kind of like a cross between lacrosse and hockey and UK football and maybe rugby, but I'm not that knowledgeable about sports, so I don't know if I'm really describing it right. But I will say that it's really fast paced, and it's really fun to watch, and I'll put a link in the the show notes of some people playing this game is really cool
1: Anyway, so this boy, Santanta, hears about Concavor's 150 boys in the boy troop, and these, again, are foster sons of neighbors and allies, and he wanted to join them. He was about maybe six years old. His mother told him not to go, but he went anyway, taking his hurling stick and ball and his toy shield and javelin, as you do when you're six and you're running away from home. He ran all the way to Ivan Vaka, tossing his toy javelin ahead of him and running to catch it before it hit the ground. Again, as you do when you're a kid, we've all played that game. Maybe not with a javelin.
0: It would be really tough to catch it before it hits the ground, like throwing something far ahead of you and then catching it before it hits the ground. It's one of the early signs of his divine ancestry that he can just casually do that at the age of six.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking more when you like practice with the softball and you like throw it up really high and then you run to catch it. Anyway, when Sentanta came upon the boy troop playing outside King Konkogor's castle, he immediately ran to join them without first stopping to ask for their protection. This was custom for anyone new joining the boy troop, but Sentanta didn't know that. Instead of observing the niceties, he plowed into the group like a little chaos demon because he's six and six-year-olds frequently are chaos demons there, I've said it. (laughs) The other boys were understandably offended. They shouted at him and flung their toy javelins at him, and he deflected them all with his toy shield. they brought out their hurling sticks and hurled their balls at him, and they all bounced harmlessly off his chest. I mean, how big is his chest? He's six.
0: I guess they're just pelting him with these balls and it just doesn't hurt. I guess, but
1: he's six. He's tiny.
0: Does anyone know in the hurling sport exactly how hard these balls are? Like, are we talking like an inflatable bladder kind of a ball or like a softball or like a, I don't know, a ball that is hard? A
1: tennis ball or a cricket ball. What do you call it? The one with pool? Like a pool.
0: (laughs) This could be really, really painful or it could be not that big of a deal depending on what kind of ball this is. If you know about hurling, let us know if it would hurt to be hit with 150 hurling balls at one time.
1: I'm pretty sure it would. I knew a girl at work who did played hurling, and I think she had bruises sometimes from getting hit.
0: Oh, well, then it's probably going to suck. Except Satanta has, he's the son of Lou, the sky god, so I guess he's fine.
1: He's fine. Then the boys threw their hurling sticks at him, and Satanta dodged every one three times 50. And then,
2: quote,
0: The warp spasm overtook him. This is the Thomas Kinsella version, and I love this. He calls it a warp spasm. Wait,
2: wait, wait. Warp spasm. The- <laughs>
0: Jen just went into a warp spasm. I can see it from here. <laughs> it seemed, I'm describing the way I'm looking at Jen right now and I'm describing how she looks. It seemed each hair was hammered into her head. <laughs> so sharply that they shot upright. You could swear a fire's speck tipped each hair. She squeezed one eye narrower than the eye of a needle. How are you doing that with your eyeball, Jen? She opened the other wider than the mouth of a goblet. She bared her jaws to the ear and peeled back her lips to the eye teeth till her gullet showed. The hero halo rose up from the crown of her head. Jen, whoa, check out your hero halo.
1: I mean, I feel like I get off on the wrong side. I'm an embusa, I warp spasm, I've got a leg of ass and a leg of brass.
0: And she also frenzies in battle. Oh, all in a day's work, kids. Like a war elephant. There's a lot of crossover. (laughs) That was Satanta's warp spasm. It was not actually Jen's warp spasm, although, yes, it was. So Kinsella calls this a warp spasm because that's what we're saying a zillion times now. If
1: you're playing a drinking game, just, you know, crack that bottle open.
0: If you're playing a drinking game, you can totally drink whenever we say warp spasm, whenever I compare anything to the ancient Gauls, whenever Jen points out a parallel to Achilles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. I haven't said anything about the Aeneid yet this time.
0: Basically the entire podcast whenever Jen brings up the Aeneid drink. Anyway, so I'm trying to tell a story. The Warp Spasm was actually Satanta's berserker mode. This is an altered mental state that people in the ancient world sometimes went into in battle. The Vikings were famous for this, and there's some documentation that the ancient goths before them used to do it and actually took drugs to simulate it. Aconite was believed among the ancient goths to turn you into a werewolf, and we talk about that a little bit more in the of the Poisoner episode. So that's the warp spasm. So this boy, Satanta, has a berserker mode, and he's six years old. The boys fled at the sight of it, and Satanta pursued them, chasing them all around the castle— And eventually he figured out that the reason for the boys lack of welcome was that he breached protocol and he asked for their protection as he should have done in the first place. And all was forgiven until five minutes later when he was chasing after them again, demanding that they ask him for his protection because he was a little chaos demon. He was also, according to the mythology, five years old, not six. Even though
1: I said he was maybe six earlier. He's five. He's five. I said he was six earlier, too. It's my fault. I blame myself. Five or six. He's going to be a lot of ages magically (laughs) this entire podcast. A wizard did it, Jen. Vitellius fixed it. So this is the story of how Santanta got his name. King Conquivore was the son of the druid Cathbad. One day Nessa, a princess of Ulster, was sitting outside Ivan Vaca when Cathbad walked by. She asked him what the current hour was lucky for, and he said, and I gotta quote this, guys, for begetting a king on a queen. <laughs> He swore up and down that this was true. Oh man, Cathbad, I don't know. Oh, Cathbad, you are very, very bad. And Cathbad said that a boy conceived in this hour would be famous throughout Ireland. Nessa, since she saw no other men nearby, had sex with Cathbad right then and there and got pregnant. No, this is like the worst pickup line ever.
0: Cathbad is like, he's like the OG pickup artist. I'm
1: deeply disappointed that this worked, but...
0: I side-eye this entire story.
1: The baby gestated for three years and three months, which I can't, being pregnant for three years and three months, oh God. When she finally gave birth, she named the boy Concavor and gave him to be raised by Cathbeth.
0: Totally sick of this child at this point.
1: Yeah, and also hopefully not to learn the same crappy pickup line. When Concavor was seven years old, the king of Ulster at the time, Fergus asked Nessa to be his wife. And she said she would, only if he would allow her son to be king for a year. So his own kids could claim a royal lineage. I guess the assumption is that her kids with Fergus would inherit the throne, but her other child that she had with Calbad, you know, it would be nice if he could also be king in a way. Just for a minute and then not. Totally. Thing is, she promised Fergus that he'd still be king in name. I think she had other ideas though.
0: I see nothing wrong with this plan. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Agrippina the Younger totally, like, would think of this plan as well.
0: Agrippina the Younger would be like, this is so transparent. I can't believe you're falling for this, Fergus.
1: Fergus agreed to this and made Concavar king in name only. But Nessa bribed Fergus's warriors. And when Fergus tried to take back his kingship, he found himself thwarted. His warriors decided, quote, What Fergus sold, let it stay sold. What Concavar bought, let it stay bought. So Concavar got to stay king. But they stayed on goodish terms because... Fergus wound up fostering his nephew, Cucullin. He did get exiled to Canot, though, for a different reason. Are we ever going to explain it, or did a wizard do it?
0: I mean, there's a whole story about why, but I'm not going to go into it. So for the purposes of what we're doing right now, the wizard did it. The Ulster Cycle is like a bunch of stories. It's like 80 stories, and I did not tell all 80 stories here.
1: So he totally gets exiled because a wizard did it or Vitellius fixed it. Concavar was such a merry suit. Everyone loved him. Everyone worshipped him. Every man in the kingdom happily let him sleep. But their wives on their wedding nights, which, ugh. Quote, so as to have him first in the family. He had a reputation for great wisdom and skill as a warrior. But the story says, quote, he never gave a judgment until it was right for fear that it might be wrong and the crops worsen. There was no harder warrior in the world. But because he was to produce a son, they never let him near danger. Also, whenever he crashed at a friend's house, he got to sleep with the friend's wife. And at the moment, he's seven years old?
0: Yeah, the only thing I can think of is that the Ulster Cycle basically calculates people's age in dog years. He's the uncle
1: to Cuckullen, but at the moment, he's seven.
0: He's seven. Cacullen is five at the moment. Okay, so they're very close in age. I think this is actually in the past, and then he grows up, and then Cuckullen comes along, but I might be screwing that up. Do you know what?
2: A wizard did it.
0: A wizard did it. A wizard is messing with the timeline. I mean, who else could?
1: Vitellius probably could. Uh, yeah. He'd fix that right up.
0: So Conquivore had three houses, the Red Branch, where he and his warriors held court, the Twinkling Horde, where he kept all his stuff, and the Ruddy Branch. Conquivore kept all his stuff in the Twinkling Horde, which I just said. The javelins, the shields, and the swords. The halls glimmered with gold and silver sword hilts and elaborate scabbards and decorated javelins and shields and goblets and plates and drinking horns. This guy is totally the
1: Hawk Dwarf Chieftain from the last episode, Jen. This guy is totally my magpie dream. I just want to go live in the Twinkling Horde. Jen wants to go roll around in the Twinkling Horde. (laughs) I do! For people who are of our age, if you've ever seen DuckTales, I want to Scrooge McDuck in that fortune. Don't you? And if you don't know what Scrooge McDuck did, we'll put it in the show notes, but he dived and swam through his gold. So
0: that's what you do when you go to the Twinkling Horde. It's like a ball pit with gold instead of balls.
1: Oh my god, yes.
0: No, I mean, what this reminds me of is the Hallstatt culture. The ancient Celts who, they were more about getting rich than about killing each other. This was the culture before the Latin culture, so it was like the older roots of the ancient Celtic culture that stretched through the UK and through Europe and all over the place. I'm not going to ramble, but we talk about it in the previous episode.
1: do you think that Concovar is part of that older culture, and when we start getting into the stuff about Kukulin, that's more moving into that more modern Gullet culture?
0: Yeah, that's kind of what I'm implying is that he feels like a relic from the Hallstatt culture. He does. Yeah, and Kukulin is totally La Ten, and so is the rest of the warrior culture around him
1: which is fascinating. It's interesting how that whole cycle has grown and mythologized around it and crystallized to show sort of an older culture and new culture together and what happens. Kind of like, wait for it, when you go from the Iliad to the Odyssey. Drink. <laughs> so <laughs> The Ruddy Branch.
0: I did not tell you what's in the Ruddy Branch. That was where they kept the severed heads. As you do. <laughs> As you do. Because if you are from an ancient Celtic warrior culture, you're going to take some heads. It's what you do. One day, Concavor was standing on the ramparts of his castle and noticed his nephew, Satanta, playing in the field with his boy troop. He was so impressed that he invited the boy to come with him to dinner that night at the home of his friend, Cullen the Smith. Satanta turned him down he was right in the middle of a game, but he promised to meet Concavor there after the game was over. Now, Cullen the Smith had a massive watchdog who was feared throughout the land, and this dog, it was a really mean, not very nice dog who barked a lot, but it was also his pride and joy. And when concavor arrived at Cullen's house, Cullen asked him if he was expecting anyone else to come, and concavor completely forgetting his conversation with Satanta, said, nope, no one else coming over here, just me. And Cullen shut the gates to his compound, released his guard dog and then they all got down to feasting.
1: So eventually, Santanta finished his game and went to Cullen's house. He found the gate barred and Cullen's hound was growling at him in a very ominous manner and clearly making doggy threats. Did not bring any doggy treats. No, he did not, which is where he went wrong to begin with. Santanta had no weapons, no snossages. All he had was his hurling ball and a stick. The dog leaped for his jugular because he's only doing his job this kid is not supposed to be there and Zintanta didn't think he just reacted, driving his hurling ball straight down the animal's throat. And I'm really sorry. I know there's a lot of animal lovers out there and that is upsetting and I should have given you a warning before that. Retroactive warning for animal cruelty. Sorry, Captain Tom. The dog died howling and it was an awful death and we're not going to get into that. Everyone in the household rushed outside to see what the matter was, expecting to find the dog had ripped out someone's throat.
0: Because let's not forget this was a very deadly trained killer guard dog. It was not a nice cuddly dog.
1: No, and he was doing his job. It's his job to protect the property. Santanta is the person who's not in the right here. Instead, they found this six-year-old boy standing unharmed over the corpse of Cullen's massive dog. Which, you know, it's good a six-year-old isn't dead as well. Like, I don't, I don't want to come down that, like, six-year-old should get mauled by dogs.
0: We don't approve of that either. We don't approve of any of this, okay? All of this is an
1: awful misunderstanding that concavore really should have sorted out.
0: Let's all blame concavore because it's all his fault. It's all his fault and everyone
1: loved him anyway.
0: So. Nobody ever thinks it's his fault. Everyone just blames the wrong person and he just gets away with all this crap for some reason.
1: So Cullen was grief stricken. Santanta swore right then and there that he would rear a new puppy from the same legendary litter to be the dog's replacement. And in the meantime, he would serve as Cullen's guard dog and guard his home from all intruders. And that's how Santanta got his new name, Cucullen, or Hound of Cullen.
2: Happy Price. Go to your Happy Price, price line Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well,
1: if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just
2: see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: (laughs) So one day, the boy, formerly known as Satanta, now known as Kukulin, overheard a boy ask the druid Cathbad what this day was lucky for.
1: <laughs> oh boy, it's getting it on, isn't
0: it? It's getting lucky,
1: Jen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this day is lucky for getting lucky. And this is not a thing you should have to tell six-year-old boys, but that is how Cathbad ruled. So what Cathbad actually said, quote from Thomas Kinsella, and basically every time we quote something, unless I tell you differently, it's from the Thomas Kinsella version of the Tane. He said, quote, if a warrior took up arms for the first time that day, his name would endure in Ireland as a word signifying mighty acts, and stories about him would last forever. When Cucullin overheard this, he immediately went to King Conchobar and told him he was ready to take up real grown-up weapons. He was like seven years old in dog years. In hound of ulster years. Right, hound of ulster years. He didn't hear the last half of the prophecy that a warrior who took up arms for the first time that day would become famous for his manly warrior deeds, but his life would be very short. Like to- Achilles drink. (laughs) Conquivore <laughs> gave the boy a real shield and spear, and Cuckullin broke them just by brandishing them. Because Cuckullin is not housebroken. Don't let him in your house. Don't let him touch your stuff. He broke 14 more after that, before finally concavor gave him his own weapons, which totally makes no sense, and those did not break.
1: Yeah, the thing is, he was like, just give me my own weapons. And his uncle was like, you're seven. This is all going to pass. It's just a phase. Here's some shields, and here's a spear, and have fun. And Cuckullin was breaking it over his knee like, nah, come on, I want my own.
0: Right. But then Konkavor had to give him his own shit because it was like the best made stuff. I think I think that's what was going on. Like he had to give him the highest quality spear in the house so he wouldn't break it. And that was his own spear.
1: Then Cacullin went off to find a chariot. He broke dozens of these, as you do, before Conquivore finally relented and lent him his own chariot along with his own charioteer. I mean this just seems inadvisable. Don't let Kukulin borrow your stuff. I mean the thing is, maybe just let him borrow your stuff from the BNA because if you try and lend him inferior quality stuff, he's going to break it and he's still going to get your stuff.
0: I mean, I basically only own inferior quality stuff, so Well, me too, except
1: for like my shiny shiny necklaces.
0: Right. I I just basically can't let Kukulin in my house. He's just not he's not housebroken. And also, he has no respect for other people's things. I mean, I'm kind of like that with books. I basically tell people, like, I use books really hard and, like, read with them in the bathtub. Oh, wait, this is where
1: we tell the funny story about how you ruined my book.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, so I'm basically the
1: book (laughs) Cucullin, you are. Do not lend Jenny Williams in your books. If you lend her a book in good faith when you're on holiday together, she will bend it back, get stand in the pages, probably let the waves roll over it three times like they did in pirate burials. She'll just ruin your book. So if you want to lend Jenny a book, just decide in your head that you've given it to her and that's it.
0: Or just don't lend me your books because you won't like me very much afterwards. I read books in the bathtub. I read them on the beach. I like take them all over. I drop them in a mud puddle and then read them some more once they dry out. Like I'm not precious about books.
1: Yeah, you read in a way that makes it impossible for anyone to read the book after you. I don't I don't call it being precious. I call it like allowing other people to enjoy the book as well. I'm a full contact reader. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> So Cucullin's been all kitted out, and he's got his chariot, and he rides off, raring for a fight, and of course, he finds one. He went into his warp spasm and slaughtered three brothers who'd boasted of killing more Ulstermen than were alive today. Then, he turned his chariot around and raced like the wind back to Ivan Vaca. The watchers on the castle walls saw Cucullin bearing down on the castle in the grip of his warp spasm, with three bloodied heads bouncing around the floor of his chariot, which I have questions like. It says they were bouncing around on the floor, but like the speed at which they must have been bouncing up and they could see them. And I don't know. I've got house, house, so many house. A wizard did it, Jen. (laughs) Patelli <laughs> has fixed it, it's fine. So fearsome did Kukulan look that the people of Ivan Vaca realized that they had to do something drastic. Otherwise, Kukulan in his battle frenzy might slaughter them all.
0: And I guess the solution that they thought of to this is totally one that you would think of. Concivore pointed a I just can't I'm, I'm having trouble with this paragraph. <laughs>
1: Fine. Jenny, just tell them what the solution was.
0: The solution was boobs, okay? Konkabor pointed over the wall at Kukulin and cried, Naked women, to him! And the- Naked
2: women, to him!
0: <laughs> naked women, and that is... <laughs> and all the naked women who just happened to be sitting around in the castle jumped up and ran down there and bared their boobs at him. And Mugane, Konkabor's wife, who had a nickname that meant having coarse like pubic hair, which is just great, led them and said, quote, These are the warriors you must contend with now. She meant her boobs. I mean, I bet they
1: were pretty spectacular boobs.
0: I bet they were the greatest. Cucullin was apparently so mortified that he hid his face and a group of warriors seized him and dragged him inside and dunked him in a cauldron of cold water to cool him off. The cauldron cracked all around him and he was dunked in a second cauldron and it, quote, "'boiled with bubbles the size of fists.'" Only when he was dunked in a third cauldron of icy water did Kakulin come back to himself. And here you see a large magical cauldron motif that repeats in other Celtic myths and also repeats in Gallic iconography and like in the graves of ancient Gauls who had giant cauldrons, which we talked about in the last episode. So Gauls, drink. Can I also just say, he's six. Is he seven at this point? Oh, no,
1: seven. Sorry, he's seven. And when he gets really frenzied, he breaks cauldrons with his boiling face. <laughs> Don't
0: let him in your house. Don't let him in your bathtub. If you've got boobs, just take him out. It's the only
1: thing that can stop him, apparently.
0: Here's the story of Cucullin and various women.
1: Boobs. Boobs. (laughs) They all have epic names, and we'll get to them.
0: They all have epic names. They probably all had epic boobs, but this isn't about the boobs. It's about the relationships, Jen.
1: You know, we're saying boobs a lot. If we were guys in a podcast saying boobs as much, it would not be acceptable.
0: We're allowed to talk about boobs. I mean, how many boobs are in this conversation? (laughs) At least four. (laughs) Unless someone has more boobs than I know about.
1: (laughs) Anyway, moving on, Cacallan became the leader of Conquivar's in-group of rage warp spasm He-Man chariot warriors. He became known for his warrior prowess and, of course, his famous
2: warp spasms
1: (laughs) and for striking down a hundred men in a single blow and, you know, stuff like that. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to sleep with him. Seriously, apparently all the women wanted to sleep with him. And no doubt some of the men did too. Because when he wasn't
2: warp spasming,
1: Cacullin was hot. <laughs> what is that? That is the warp spasm voice. It is <laughs> the warp spasm voice. I base this voice on Batman. Jen's warp
0: spasm <laughs> voice sounds suspiciously like Christian Bale.
1: So Cacullin is often described as small in stature with gray eyes and dark hair and a kind of melancholy. Demeanor, dreamy. Kind of emo. He's also described as being beardless. And people in the stories are forever underestimating him because he looks like a beardless boy because he might be anything from 11 to 17, depending on which story we're talking about. He kind of peaks early. Well, he is a beardless boy. How old is he now? Like 10? I'm not sure, but it very much is Achilles. It's like he'll be dead quite young. (laughs) There are some more interesting descriptions of him, though. Thomas Kinsella says his hair was, quote, smooth as though a cow had licked it.
0: Hot. Is it? (laughs) The thing is, Jen, he just had nice well-kept hair with cow spit. <laughs> So this is Cucullin when he cleans up. Quote, You would think he had three distinct heads of hair, brown at the base, blood red in the middle, and a crown of golden yellow. This hair was settled strikingly into three coils on the cleft at the back of his head. Each long, loose-flowing strand hung down in shining splendor over his shoulders, deep gold and beautiful and fine as a thread of gold. A hundred neat red-gold curls shone darkly on his neck, and his head was covered with a hundred crimson threads matted with gems. He had four dimples in each cheek, yellow, green, green crimson and blue, and seven bright pupils, eye jewels, in each kingly eye. Each foot had seven toes, and each hand seven fingers, the nails with the grip of a hawk's claw or a griffin's clench. And here is a fun fact. So ancient writers from around maybe a thousand years before this story was written down, give or take, write about Celtic warriors putting lime in their hair to bleach and stiffen it. Diodorus in particular writes this about the Gauls, and we had this quote in the last episode, but I'm just gonna give it to you again here because it's short. Diodorus tells us, quote, there are always washing their hair in lime water, and they pull it back from the forehead to the top of the head and back to the nape of the neck. The treatment of their hair makes it so heavy and coarse that it differs in no respect from the mane of horses. And this particular paragraph that describes Kukulin's multicolored hair and elsewhere when they talk about the warp spasm and how his hair stuck up, the thing about Kukulin's warp spasm, where his hair stands up on his head, could be specifically referring to the practice of stiffening one's hair with lime before battle. And there's actually an old meme that says Kukulin Inspired this practice. And if that's the case, that means that this story must be really old indeed and a lot more widespread than you would think. Diodorus was writing between 90 and 30 BC. And also, another interesting thing here is that lime water doesn't just stiffen your hair, it bleaches it. So, if you're continually bleaching your hair and it grows out, and I know this from experience because my hair is currently bleached blonde right now, and I also have tried to dye my hair blonde using drugstore dye and lemon water and stuff, and this has happened to me before. If you're continually bleaching your hair and it grows out, you may eventually wind up with dark roots and kind of a reddish or strawberry blonde middle, depending on how dark your hair was to start with, and blasted blonde tips. And this description of Cucullin's tricolored hair might come from that, although it's a little bit backwards in this description because I think it's lighter
1: at the top. And I would say, like, I've got red hair, which is has a lot of different things in it. So if you're putting lime water into my hair, you're gonna get a ton of colors coming out. It'll be like a rainbow will come out, kind of like a red ombre rainbow. So I could see how he'd have darker pieces and lighter pieces because depending on what colors were in the makeup of his hair, he could have quite a lot. But I have a real question about this and it's about the lime water. Are limes native to Ireland?
0: I think it's not lime like the fruit. It's like the mineral lime.
1: Oh, okay. So one day, Cullen, with his amazing hair, was hanging out with all his warrior friends at Conqueror's Hall, drinking from a great giant cauldron which could hold, quote, 100 measures of coal black drink, which I want to know what that drink is, probably blood, and practicing with their weapons.
0: This harkens back to both the Lady of Vix and the Dwarf chieftain who had massive cauldron in their graves. But
2: what was in them?
0: Well, in the case of the Lady of Vicks, it could hold 1,500 bottles of wine. The Hogdorf chieftain's cauldron could hold 500 liters of mead. In fact, that was how much mead was in that cauldron when he was buried. Giant cauldrons, ubiquitous throughout Gaul. Could I have a bath in that wine cauldron? (laughs) Go into a warp spasm and I might have to stuff you in there just to get you to chill out.
1: Don't tempt me, Jenny Williamson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was an invitation. I don't know. That sounds like a fun Saturday.
1: Anyway, lots of famous warriors were in attendance, but Cacullen outshone them all, and women were suddenly finding excuses to wander by. Because Cacullen was single, and he had a bangin' head cleft, and he was totally, totally ready to mingle. The other warriors were getting uneasy that he might steal their wives or seduce their daughters because, I mean, he's got a bangin' head cleft.
0: He's got the head cleft. He's got the very colorful dimples. Conchobar
1: sent nine men into every province of Ireland looking for a wife for Cacullin. but Caculin already had someone in mind: Emer, the daughter of Fergus the Cunning. And one day, he hopped in his chariot with his fancy chariot driver and set out to woo her. As only a guy with a head cleft and magical rainbow hair can, he found her sitting in the grass outside her father's castle, studying embroidery with her foster sisters, because she was very very. A very good person who did all of the things that the Christians who were telling the story would want girls at that time to do. And he and Emer struck up a conversation in riddles. And here's how it went.
0: Quote, Cucullin caught sight of the girl's breasts over the top of her dress.
1: I see a sweet country, he said.
2: I could rest my weapon there.
0: No man will travel this country until he has killed a hundred men at every ford from Scheman Ford to the River Alebean.
2: In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapon. <laughs>
0: die. No man will travel this country until he has done the feat of the salmon leap, carrying twice his weight in gold, and struck down three groups of nine men, each with a single stroke, leaving the middle man of each nine unharmed.
2: In that sweet country, I'll rest my weapon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No man will travel this country who hasn't gone sleepless from Sawane when the summer goes to its rest until Imbulk when the yews are milked at spring's beginning.
2: It is said and done.
0: <laughs> that was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. I am one over. It was. And we tease and we need no harm with it. Anyway, so this this whole flirting and riddles, right? Number one, I think Emer is really carrying the load of the flirting and riddles here. Like, Kukulin is basically, like, texting her in
1: Tinder. Kukowin is one step above sending her dick pics. He's edging closer <laughs> to it. <laughs> really edging closer. He's like, I see that. I'm going to plow that. That's literally what he's saying. going to put my weapon in there. Which is not a great pickup line. I think he learned it from Cathbad. I also want to say, like, Emer be careful what you wish for. Like, if you know anything about these stories, you know that he's going to do all of these things, and then you're going to be stuck with him. Just maybe, if you're trying to choose a husband, give them actual tasks that are going to tell you whether or not they're going to be a good a match. Not like killing and salmon leaping and killing and...
0: Times were tough, Jen. You need a dude who can do the
1: salmon leap. You do, but I would also like a dude who can like balance the (laughs) household bills and not get us sold into debt in Rome. Doing the dishes, (laughs)
0: picking up his socks, occasionally vacuuming. These are the warrior feats of good partner
1: material. Anyway, after that conversation, these two were wildly in love. That's how love works. I did my warp spasm voice. If you don't love me, I don't know what to tell you. I am smitten, Jen. As you should be.
0: I'm just over here with hard eyes right now. It's all right, warp
1: spasm voice. She doesn't mean to hurt your feelings. I'm not. I'm serious. (laughs) I
0: love you, warp spasm voice. (laughs) 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 <laughs> anyway. you'll hurry up before I give your warp spasm voice some tasks and then live to regret it.
1: <laughs> Very true. But Emer's father disapproved of this match.
0: Why? That's a shocker. I know.
1: He wasn't thrilled that the seven-year-old who like went on a murdering spree and had to be stopped by boobs wants to court his daughter. Can't imagine why.
0: I think he's like 11 at this point. I think he's aged up a little bit.
1: I think he's aged up, but what I'm saying is the stories of the seven-year-old murderer haven't gone away. I mean, the fact that he was stopped by a Bunch of boobs not going to live that down. Yeah, he's never going to live that down. So, Emer's father engineered to have Cucullan sent away to train with the warrior woman, Skatach, or the shadowy one, in the hope that her training would be so rigorous that she might actually kill him. So, Cucullan leaped at this chance because it sounds like fun. And before he left, he and Ymir vowed to remain pure for each other until they met again. So, Skatok lived in Alba, which is in Scotland, in a vigorously defended stronghold on an island that was difficult to find because if you're going to be a warrior woman who trains other warriors you better make it difficult for them to find you because that is part of the quest man
0: right so I'm just going to give you a spoiler here the super difficult Scottish island that was really hard to find was the Isle of Sky. I read somewhere that there you actually sent me this link Jen there's some ruins that are identified to be Skatak's stronghold in the Isle of Sky, and I did not go down that rabbit hole of figuring out what these ruins actually are but I'll put a link in the show notes
1: Yeah, and if I ever get there, I'm going to take all
2: the pictures.
0: Yeah, and there was also a thing that I read somewhere. There's like a pile of things that I read somewhere that I cannot corroborate, but that sound really right. And one of those is that the Isle of Skye was actually named for Skatak. I don't know if that's true.
1: Well, let's hope it was. And if it's not... We apologize.
0: I might have made it up, but it sounds great.
1: <laughs> so warriors who sought to train with her died just trying to get to her stronghold. But Cullen found her island because it was the Isle of Skye, accessible only by way of an extremely irritating smackdown bridge. Kinsella tells us that, quote, no sooner did a person step onto one end, but the other end flew up at him and threw him on his back. Cucullin tried to cross the bridge three times and failed, and by this time his men were making fun of him. So our Cucullin went into his
2: Warp spasm!
1: And performed the hero's salmon leap. The salmon leap! The salmon leap and jumped right onto the middle of the bridge, and then leaped to the far end so fast that the bridge couldn't fly up and smack him down again. Cucullin ran up to Skatok's fort and broke down the door. Skatok sent her daughter, Uaha, down to see what all the commotion was about. Uaha saw Cucullin and immediately fell in love with him. I mean, he does have a magic head cleft. <laughs> She welcomed him into the castle, feasting with him and flirting with him. And then the two started to play wrestle. And this turned into a sexual manner of play wrestling. And
0: they were wrestling right on the floor of the living room like a couple of puppies
1: as you do when you're with the Hound of Ulster. And as you can guess, Cucullin immediately broke his vow to Ymir with the first woman he met. So Cucullin got a little
0: bit too rough with the horseplay, and he hurt her finger and she screamed, whereupon Skatok's champion, who was Oaha's lover because mama's got needs, all right, rushed in to save her. Cucullin killed this man on the spot and cut off his head right then and there because that's what he does, and Oaha was not pleased. But Cucullin vowed to take on all the dead man's duties, including leading Skatak's army. And I'm definitely sensing a pattern here.
1: Yeah, it's totally a pattern. He just kills someone and takes their jobs. (laughs) So after three days, Skatak Still refused to teach and can't imagine why. She's
0: probably really just like, I would kick this guy out, but he's such a pain in the ass to kick out. I'm just hoping he'll go away if I ignore him.
1: Uaha told him to go to the place where she was training her own sons and gave him very specific instructions, which Kekalan followed to the letter. He, quote, went up to Skata and stripped his sword and put the point to her heart and said, Death is hanging over you. <laughs>
0: I'll give you any three things, she said, if you can ask them in
1: one breath. Cacullin asked for what Uaha had told him to ask for. Thorough training, a dowry for when he married, and a prediction of his future.
0: Did you say that in one breath? I
1: think I did. Granted, your wish is granted. Skata agreed to train him, and while he stayed there, he slept with Uaha. And maybe also get it on with Skatah because he might have been part Julian Claudian and just kept it all in the family.
0: So Skatah trained other men too, and one of those was a guy named Ferdiad, who was a warrior from Kanat, which was a neighboring country to Ulster, which is where Cuchulain was from.
1: And where Fergus got exiled to.
0: Right. Fergus got exiled to Connaught. Anyway, so Connaught and Ulster are frequently at war and Despite that, these two guys, Ferdiad and Cuchulain, become very close, learning all the same moves, and they also became lovers.
1: Aw, they're Achilles and Patrocles.
0: Yes! Okay, drink. But yes, actually. I mean, because Patrocles kind of humanizes Achilles, and I think that Ferdiad plays that role with Cuchulain a little bit, too. Incidentally, ancient writers definitely do mention men sleeping with men in Celtic culture, and there's a quote from Diodorus who says, quote, Although their wives are comely, they have very little to do with them, but rage with lust in outlandish fashion for the embraces of males. It is their practice to sleep upon the ground on the skins of wild beasts and to tumble with a catamite on each side. And remember, a catamite is a male lover. This is definitely pretty homophobic, but it's still describing that this happens. And we apologize for that. (laughs) Skatak taught both boys lots of feats. Quote, the apple feet, the thunder feet. The feats of the sword edge and the sloped shield, the feats of the javelin and rope, the body feet, the feet of the cat and the heroic salmon leap, the pole throw and the leap over a poisoned stroke, the noble chariot fighters crouch, the spurt of speed, the feet of the chariot wheel thrown on high and the feet of the shield rim, the breath feet with gold apples blown up in the air, the snapping mouth and the hero's scream, the stroke of precision, the stunning shot and the cry stroke, stepping on a lance in flight and straightening erect on its point, the sickle chariot and the trussing of a warrior on the point of spears. So, A lot of these feats are their own descriptions. For most of them, we don't really know what they are. I want to zero in, though, on the salmon leap, which comes up a lot. Atlantic salmon live around the coast of Ireland and run up its rivers every year to spawn. And the Irish would have been well acquainted with the sight of salmon heroically leaping up waterfalls, which is maybe where this salmon's leap thing comes from. And I can definitely leave a link in the show notes to pictures of salmon leaping up waterfalls. It's really cool to watch.
1: So Cullen learned all these feats. Training with his lover and brother-in-arms for dad.
0: I think he was also sleeping with both Uaha and Skatak at the same time. He had like three different friends with benefits going on here. And also he was learning all these feats.
1: It was just all the fun for him at this point in his life the two learned all the same moves and often sparred together. Skatok taught one thing just to Cacullen, however. How to use the Gaibolga. This was a mythic spear that broke into fragments whenever it entered an opponent's body. It had been made from the bones of a sea monster that had died fighting another sea monster and we kind of think it was probably a mosasaur. Made from the bones of mosasaurs. Exactly. And it had to be thrown with the feet, not the hands. It was said that the Gaibolga never missed and never failed to deliver a killing wound. Skitokh had a deadly enemy, Aoife, the chieftain of the neighboring tribe, purported to be, quote, the hardest woman warrior in the world. On the eve of battle with Aoife, Skatokh gave Cucullin a sleeping draught and tied him to his bed so that he wouldn't rush into battle and get killed. But it didn't work. The draught wore off and Cucullin broke his bonds and ran to join the battle. He cut a bloody path through Skatok's enemies, and Aoife noticed his prowess. She challenged him to single combat.
0: Before the combat, Kukulin asked Skatok what Aoife valued most in the world. Three things, Skatok said her horses, her chariot, and her charioteer. I mean, that girl knew where her priorities lay. So here is how the battle went down. Quote, Cuchulain met and fought Aoife on the rope of feet. I have this picture of them fighting on a tightrope. Aoife smashed Cuchulain's weapon. All she left him was a part of his sword, no bigger than a fist. Look, oh look, Cuchulain cried. Aoife's charioteer and her two horses and the chariot have all fallen into the valley. They are all dead. I mean, come on. Oh, Cuchulain. This is so transparent. Aoife looked round and Cuchulain leaped at her and took her on his back like a sack. Seriously?
1: Do better.
0: Thank you, Jen. Do better. And brought her back to his own army and held a naked sword over her. Do it, Jen. Do the voice. Grant me three desires. What you can ask in one (laughs) breath you may have, she said.
2: My three desires are hostages for Skoktok and never attack her again. Your company tonight in your own fort and bear me a son.
0: Okay, number one, that is four things. Number two, I did not do
1: that in one breath.
0: (laughs) You do not get what you wish for. You failed. The feat of asking for things in one breath and counting how many things you're asking for accurately. In a Batman voice, it's just too much for me. (laughs) In the Batman voice, you have failed at that feat. <laughs> <laughs> Ifa was totally down for this, apparently. The two of them started up a steamy affair. This would be who? The fourth person that Cuchulain was sleeping with, who was not the woman that he swore to be pure to. Maybe it's just pure means a whole different thing to Cuchulain. I don't know. Anyway, so they had a steamy affair and Ifa got pregnant with a son. Cuchulain gave Ifa a gold thumb ring and told her to send the boy to him in Ireland when his thumb was big enough to fit the ring.
1: Then Cucullin returned to Ulster to marry Emer who had been totally faithful to him even though Cucullin had been basically sticking it to everything that moved. But getting Emer would be its own heroic feat because Emer's father had set up such a strong guard that it took Cucullin a whole year to break through. In the process of trying Cucullin slew eight men in a single stroke while leaving the ninth one alive and he did this three times and each time the man left alive was one of Emer's brothers because he really didn't want to have- have to do with that Christmas get-together if he killed the brothers as well.
0: The family reunions would be super awkward, although not more awkward than a Julio-Claudian family reunion.
1: Well, they're all related to each other five times over (laughs) and all planning to marry each other. (laughs) They're all sleeping together and they're all trying to poison
0: each other at the same time.
1: Breaking through Emer's dad's defenses took a whole year. Finally, Cacohen managed it, kidnapped Emer and one of her maidservants and made off with her in his chariot, killing a hundred men at every ford he came across so that he could be sure of fulfilling her expectations in a partner. This is what she asked for. It is is what she asked for and we told her earlier be careful what you wish for. Yeah, be careful what you ask the Batman voice to do for you. So Cullen returned to concavor's castle with his fiance and her maidservant who, let's be honest, he was probably sleeping with. And when he got there, he realized he had another problem. Conquivore had the right of first night. Whenever any of his subjects got married, he got to sleep with that woman on the wedding night because this is awful.
0: And bear in mind that Conquivore is Kukulin's uncle and also like his foster father. So he's kind of like his uncle dad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've seen this before.
0: <laughs> uncle dad congivore. And now he gets to sleep with Kukulin's new wife. This understandably did not make Cucullin happy. He quote, grew wild at this and trembled so hard that the cushion burst under him and the feathers flew around the house. Although this is a little bit hypocritical because he just slept with like four other people at Skatok's place. I mean, what happens at Skatok's
1: place stays at Skatok's place, okay? I mean, it's like what happens in Messalina Palace.
0: Right, what happens in the Imperial brothel stays in the Imperial brothel. This presented a dilemma for Conchavor. I guess Conchavor has a problem here. He couldn't refuse to sleep with Emer because it would look like he was giving way to Kukulin. Honor was at stake. Plus, he did it with all his other men's wives, so how bad would it look that Kukulin got to be exempt and they didn't? But Kukulin was kind of a dangerous guy, especially when he went into his warp spasm.
2: Warp spasm? <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna keep all of these in. (laughs) Oh my god, I am.
0: Each and every Warp Spasm voice is going in this episode. Lovingly curated. (laughs) (laughs) Collection of Jens, Warp Spasm Voices.
1: The first time I hear it played back to me because I can't, I don't know how it actually sounds. (laughs) gonna wet myself. <laughs> it sounds phenomenal.
0: Anyway, so the whole point of this is that pissing off Cucullin is kind of suicidal and you do not want to do it. So an unhappy Cucullin is a very loud and disruptive Cucullin. So concavor told him to go outside and run around the house a couple times, which is totally a thing that my dad used to do when I was acting up when I was a little kid. He'd just be like, yeah, go outside and run around the house. What he really did was tell Cucullin to go and gather together all the deer and all the wild boar and every kind of fly creature in the woods around even Vaca and bring them all to him. So go and harass some animals. Kukulin did as he was told and concavor called for the druid Cathbad who always has a pickup line for every occasion and this is a great time for that. They talked the problem over and decided that concavor would sleep with Emer that night but Cathbad would sleep between them so that nothing untoward would happen.
1: I feel really bad for Emer here because she's got like the weirdest three-way. Here. No one's asking her what should happen. (laughs) Number one, it's a very odd wedding night deeply awkward. So that was Imur's incredibly awkward wedding night. And Kankovar provided the girl with a dowry the next day. I mean, it's literally the least he could do. Cucullin already had a dowry from Skata, And fun fact, in Celtic culture, the men and women both brought a dowry to the marriage. You also see this in Gallic culture. Imur and Cucullin were never parted until death except when Cucullin was sleeping with other women and out fighting and this happened all the time.
0: I guess they didn't see each other very much is the bottom line. I mean, that is maybe why their marriage lasted. You might have hit the nail on the head right there. So Emer was described as having the six gifts of womanhood, a gentle voice, sweet words, beauty, wisdom, chastity, and skill at needlework. I have absolutely none of those gifts of womanhood. I don't either. Don't really want to either. Needlework sounds good. I mean, but other than that, I'm like, I'd like a sweet voice. I think our listeners would like that. I kind of think I sound like a sick ostrich whenever I listen to the recordings, but that's just me. I have so many thoughts about Emer, you know, because I feel like in the Ulster cycle, a lot of the time what happens is Kukulin is just hounding around out there and Emer is completely, like, most of the time she knows about it and she's just completely chill because she just does not feel threatened by this at all. And I just have to like roll my eyes a little bit because it's just so unequal because of course she's not allowed to sleep around. And I also question whether this picture of Emer was a later Christian invention because it kind of doesn't sound like the contemporary accounts of Celtic women.
1: Well, it really doesn't, especially when you look at Cucullin's mother, who is his uncle's charioteer. His uncle dad's charioteer. Yeah, I mean, women have, it seems, and I I don't know, and I could be wrong, but in the earlier part of this story, they had a lot more agency. And I think there is a Christian lens on it because things like needlework and chastity and sweet voice, that sounds a lot more like it was written in the 1100s and it was really giving her that Christian ideal.
0: Yeah, there is one thing about, I kind of realized about Cucullin and Emer's relationship though, is that Emer was supposed to be kind of brainy and smart. The riddle conversation, that's kind of part of it, where they have this conversation and Emer is like really smart with her riddles and that is what makes Cullen fall for her. It's her brains. So she's kind of like
1: Penelope then.
0: Yeah, she is a little bit like Penelope and everyone who is doing the drinking game should drink. As always, I mean, it wouldn't be this podcast. (laughs) You don't see him doing this a lot in this particular story that I'm telling. But in the Ulster Cycle, sometimes you see Kukulin doing stuff like he plays chess a lot. And his father, Lou, was the god of chess and stuff. So he also has this brainy side. It's kind of cool that he likes her for her mind.
1: Yeah, which is really sweet, actually. I kind of like the idea that he is quite strategic and brainy and not just killing things all the time.
0: He's a complicated guy, okay, Jen? He's not just a warp spasming, head cleft hottie. <laughs> well, I like a complicated guy and I like his head cleft. Don't let the head cleft near you because all of a sudden you're just going to be like, take me now, Kukulin. Cullen. Warp spasm?
1: <laughs> it's like all of a sudden he's nudging you with his head cleft and you're lost. <laughs> I feel like this is your ghost pregnancy, not mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting ghost
0: pregnant. I'm using protection around the head cleft. So there's a quote here from Diodorus, who naturally has a totally negative thing that he wants to tell you about women in Celtic society this time. He says, quote, they feel no concern for their proper dignity but prostitute to others without a qualm, the flower of their bodies. Nor do they consider this a disgraceful thing to do, but rather when any of them is thus approached and refuses the favor offered him, this they consider an act of dishonor. He's obviously being a jerk about it, but the sense that we get here is of women who kind of get to do what they want sexually in a way that the ancient Romans do not. Queen Maeve, who we're gonna meet later, maybe a more older and possibly more accurate representation of what pre-Christian Celtic women might've been like.
1: So Cucullin married Emer, and across the sea in Alba, Aoife heard the news. She realized that Cucullin, the dog that he was, must have known this girl while he'd been with her. He'd gone to his marriage still warm from her bed, and this enraged her, and she vowed revenge. But Eva's revenge was a dish best served cold. She raised her son, Conla, in the proud warrior tradition, teaching him every trick Cucullin knew. Then, she sent him to Skatach to learn more, because I guess they mended all their bridges and were friends now. They have Cucullin in common, so there's that. Maybe they bonded over their polyamorous relationship with Cucullin, and now they were all friends. When the boy had grown so that Cucullin's ring fit on his thumb, Eva sent him to Ireland to find his father, but not before giving him three gisa or sacred prohibitions. He could not give way to any man, he could never give his own name first, and he could never back down from a fight, even if he knew he'd lose. And I mean, Mom, that is a lot of pressure to put on your son. It is a lot of pressure. You're really stacking the decks against him? I thought we were supposed to be, like, making it easier for him, but no.
0: No, we're not. What we're doing is using our child as a vehicle for vengeance, number one. And number two, this is a whole lot of policing your son's conversation. You're not allowed to give your own name first, they have to give their name
1: first. Totally. Conla traveled to Ireland and landed on the beach near Vaca. A messenger from Concavar found him and asked his name, and Conla refused to give it because he couldn't. Refusing to give your name to the king's messenger in a foreign land was a major breach of protocol, and breaches of protocol in this world were deadly insults, even if the offending person didn't know the protocol, because let's just stack those decks against him.
0: When he heard the news that there was a boy on the beach who refused to give his name to the king's messenger, Conquivar was offended. The nerve. The nerve of this young man, refusing to give his name to the king. So he sent his best warriors down one by one to teach this kid a lesson. And Conla beat them all one by one. So finally, Concavor hauled out the big guns and sent down Cúchulainn. Cúchulainn went down to this beach and he saw that the offending party was just a kid. And he said, look, the only reason everyone here is being so hard on you is that you refuse to follow the protocol. Just not like Kukulin has ever done that himself. Give us your name and nobody has to get killed. And for Kukulin, this is being incredibly reasonable. This
1: is that reasonable side of him. Ymir has brought out the best in him.
0: Yeah, because they're married now and I think Emer is showing him another way. Kanla felt a great urge to give this stranger his name. Still, he couldn't because of his Gisa, the magical prohibitions he couldn't break. So Kanla explained about the Gisa. He wasn't allowed to give his name first. He asked Kukullin if he might not agree to back down from the fight instead. And of course Cucullin couldn't do that. Honor was at stake. Honor was at stake. Thank you, Jen. His king's honor was at stake. And everyone was watching from the castle walls. If he backed down from a fight right now in front of everyone, he would never live it down.
1: And so they fought. It was the hardest fight of Cucullin's life. This nameless boy knew every one of his tricks and saw his every move coming almost before he made it. It was kind of like magic. For perhaps the first time in his life, Cucullin thought he might lose. But then he... Whoops bezund and seized up his guy Bolka. The moment Conla saw Kakulan's Whoops Basum, he realized that this must be his father, and he deliberately pulled his spear throw, but Kukulan did not pull his throw. He thrust his spear into the enemy's guts, disemboweling him. And Conla, standing with his guts around his feet, raised his hand to show his father the thumb ring he'd left with his mother all that time ago. Kakulan was struck with grief. He ran to his son and put his arms around him, carefully lowering him to the ground. Both of them wept and cursed Aoife. He'd set the whole thing up. And then Cucullin called to the heroes of the Red Branch to come down and give their names to his son. And they did, one by one, and Conla embraced each man before he died.
0: Conquivore was worried that Chulainn's grief might drive him mad and that he'd turn on his own friends in a rage. To prevent that, the druid Cathbad cast a spell on Chulainn. If he wanted revenge, he should take it out on the waves in the Strand. So for three days and three nights, Chulainn fought the waves until he fell down, exhausted. It's just so heartbreaking. It just kind of shows the extremes that this honor-bound warrior culture forced people to neither one of them could back down from a fight, and that put them both in a really bad situation.
1: I have to say this, though. Like, Conla, you had a piece of jewelry. Just flash up that thumb ring, man. Just be like, yo, can't give you my name, but I can show you my ring. Yeah, I definitely think that the
0: timing was everything with the whole thumb ring situation. Could have changed the whole outcome, but no. But no, that's not how tragic stories work. I mean, there is a hole in that plot, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that a wizard did it. Cathbad did it. Let's blame Cathbad. <laughs>
1: Our next, I think it's our final story, is the cattle raid.
0: So the cattle raid is
1: what this has all been building up to. I know. The kingdom of Ulster had a deadly enemy, the neighboring kingdom of Connaught. This country was ruled by a king and queen, Eilo and Maeve. Queen Maeve was a formidable woman, beautiful, wealthy, a ferocious war leader, and sexually promiscuous. Sounds like our kind of girl. Yeah, she's actually pretty badass. Her name is derived from the proto-Celtic word for mead, and it may mean mead woman.
0: Yeah, and it might also mean one
1: who intoxicates. That's an amazing name. It was said that she needed 30 men to satisfy her in bed. I mean, this is sounding very Messalena-esque, guys. It's just a data point. 30 men. It's a very specific data point, though. Her husband, Alo, was much younger than her and was distantly related. He'd been sent by his parents to be raised by Maeve and her first husband. He grew up to be a skilled warrior.
0: He was a foster son.
1: Yeah, and he later became Maeve's lover because cougar.
0: Because that is how Maeve rolls, okay?
1: Okay. Exactly. And when Maeve's husband found out, he tried to send Ilo away, but Maeve refused to let him go.
0: Because mama's got needs, honey. Mama needs your
1: biscuit. And then Maeve's husband challenged Ilo to single combat and lost. So Ilo became Maeve's next husband and the king of Knaut. And I think it's really interesting here that that line is matrilineal and not patrilineal. The ruling of the land stays with Maeve, not her husband.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting, isn't it? So one day Maeve and Elil got talking about which one of them had come to the marriage with more wealth. And of course, because this was the ancient world, things got completely out of hand. Honor was at stake.
2: Honor was at stake.
0: Thank you, warp spasm voice. (laughs) Suddenly, each of them was pulling out all of their belongings from their jewels and golden plates and precious stones right down to the wash buckets. And it turned out that they were actually pretty much equal. Except for one thing. Ailil had a prize bull, and Maeve didn't. This bull, Finnebach by name, had actually once belonged to Maeve, but had refused to belong to a woman, so he'd wandered over to Ailil's herd because toxic masculinity, even among the livestock. Maeve sent messengers throughout the land to find a woke feminist prize bull to outshine her husband's red pill douchebag bull. As you bloody well do. Right, because thank you, I agree. It turned out the bull she wanted was an Ulster, it was owned by a man named Dair, who I'm probably mispronouncing. And Maeve sent messengers with this offer. All he had to do was loan the bull to her for a year. He didn't even have to give it to her, just loan it to her. And she'd pay him 50 yearling heifers, a chariot worth 21 bondmaids, which is super specific. I mean, how much is a bondmaid as a unit of currency? I don't know. And quote, her own friendly thighs. Maeve and Ayleel, by the way, in case you have not figured this out, were ethically non-monogamous.
1: So Dyer wasn't a total idiot. He enthusiastically agreed to this deal and threw a big feast for Maeve's messengers to celebrate. At this feast, the messengers got drunk and made an ill-advised boast about how if Dyer hadn't agreed to the deal, they'd just have taken the bull anyway. I mean, not a smooth move, guys. You'd think Dyer would have laughed this off, but this is the ancient world and things escalated extremely quickly.
0: Once again,
1: (laughs) honor was at stake. Honor was at
0: stake. (laughs) This is the best episode we've ever done.
1: Dyer was suddenly forced to prove his honor by insisting the messengers couldn't have taken that bull. No one could have taken that bull without permission. That bull didn't go anywhere without his say-so. And that, in fact, the entire army of Knot could not take that bull if he didn't want to give it.
0: Just forget about the friendly thighs. Just forget about it. And
1: furthermore now the deal was off and they could just try and take it if they wanted it so bad just bring it so queen mev heard the deal was off and she decided to go there herself and have a reasonable conversation with that like an adult (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's not what happened. It's not April Fool's <laughs> yet, is it? Anyway, she started assembling an army, guys. We're not done with this
2: story yet.
0: So Maeve called together all the named heroes in her land, including her seven sons, whose names were all Maine and who were referred to as the Maine. Don't ask questions. A wizard did it. And two people Cucullin knew well. Ferdiad, his friend and lover from his time with Skatah, and Fergus, his foster father who had been exiled to Cannat. And you could kind of see why Fergus would want to fight Conquivore, who just usurped his crown when he was seven and exiled... Fergus. But in the stories, Fergus seems remarkably chill about this, so I don't know. Maybe it's fine with him. Maybe he's enlightened, you know. So thousands of people assembled and they started advancing on Ulster. Ulster was home to many famous heroes who were more than capable of taking on this army. But as Maeve's army approached, an old curse put them all out of commission. Here's how it had happened.
1: Ages ago, Vakha, the goddess of avon Vakha, married a mortal man named Krunik. And one day, at a festival, Krunik had a few too many. You know, he really liked that giant cauldron full of mead. And he boasted to the king of Ulster that his wife could outrace all of the king's chariots. The king laughed it off like a reasonable person and ordered another round of mead. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. He had Kruanuk arrested and threatened him with death unless his wife came right now this very instant and proved his Boast. The thing was, Faka was heavily pregnant. Some accounts say she was actually in labor. But, you know,
2: honor was at stake.
1: Honor was at stake! And the king refused to back down. Vaca showed up and raced those chariots, and she won, of course, and then she gave birth to twins, as you do right there on the finish line. In between labor screams, she cursed the men of Ulster that in their greatest hour of need, they would all become weak with the pain of childbirth. What a curse. Yeah, that's a great curse. I know, and this was now the hour of Ulster's greatest need, and all of its men were down with labor pains. All of them, that is, except for Cucullin, maybe because he's a demigod.
0: Cucullin was supposed to be guarding the border, but he let Maeve and Eileel's entire army slip by in the night because he was having sex with a woman who was not his wife. Way to go, Cucullin. When he realized what happened, he set off with his charioteer and chased after the army. So Cucullin basically had one job here. Slow Maeve's army down so that Ulster's heroes would have time to recover from the labor pangs. He did it through psychological guerrilla warfare. Keeping himself hidden, Cuchulain stalked Maeve's army, picking off her soldiers with his sling. And there are gory descriptions of people's heads randomly bursting and brains flying everywhere from Cuchulain's sling stones. What Cuchulain's doing is he's acting like a weaker army, harrowing a stronger one. Right, Jen? Like he's staying in the shadows. He's picking them off. Anyone who separates themselves from the army to go and forage, he's terrorizing them and killing them so they can't even go forage. He's basically conducting a guerrilla war campaign.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to just stop for a minute about sling stones. And I don't know if we've talked about it before or not. We probably have. We have talked about sling stones several times. They were really dangerous. They were so dangerous. And they were one of those things that before this podcast, I was like, eh, whatever. It's a little stone. They were like ancient world bullets. If you had a really skilled slinger from a certain distance, it would be like a bullet.
0: Slings were extremely deadly. And if you had like a slinger core in your army, it was one of the most dangerous sections of your army. If you're in a museum and you see sling bullets from like Greece or different regions that really specialized in this. They do look like
1: bullets. I have to say it every single time because every single time I'm like, how did you not realize they were like ancient world bullets? So Kukhalin operating like a sharpshooter
0: here and just picking people off.
1: He's a sniper just
0: hanging out in the woods. He also used the honor-bound, never-back-down warrior culture to his advantage. He isolated Maeve's named warriors and invoked the custom of single combat at river fords, which is a shallow place in the river where you cross, forcing them to stop and fight him. And he invariably won because he's Cuchulain and left the heads on pikes for Maeve's army to find. He also left challenges for Maeve's army, like cutting down a massive oak tree in the path of the approaching army and carving a message in it that none should pass until someone from that army jumped that oak on his chariot on the first attempt, but not Ferdiad because he knew Ferdiad could do it. So sit down, Ferdiad, not you. You don't count. No, Ferdiad,
1: you're not invited to this table. Go sit with the kid.
0: Well, I mean, the cool thing about Ferdiad is that he keeps up with Kukulin a lot and he doesn't have like demigod status. He's just a regular human. I think he's got some magic armor or something, but he's not like half god. No wonder Cucullin is like, just sit down and don't do it because he might outshine me. Yeah. So anyway, none of Maeve's famous heroes could stand to back down from a challenge. So the entire army had to stop and pitch camp while they all attempted to leap the oak tree in their chariots. 30 horses were killed and 30 chariots smashed before someone finally leaped over the oak tree. And it was Fergus, Cucullin's foster dad of
1: course it was. At this point, the men in Maeve's army were freaked out, and rightly so. They kept coming upon the heads of men that Cucullin was impaling on pikes and spears, and heads had been exploded with slingstones, and they were named heroes, and they were more than a match for anyone. They shouldn't have been dying so easily. Only Ferdiad and Fergus recognized what was going on. They regaled Maeve, Eilil, and anyone within earshot with the tales of Cucullin's heroic boyhood, adding to the general anxiety because, if you didn't think that he was bad now, let me tell you about the seven-year-old and the three heads in the chariot and the boobs. And all the shit he broke. One day, Queen Mav rebuked her warriors, demanding to know why they weren't chasing after this pestering demon who was killing you all. She sent a large group after Cucullin, hoping to ambush him and sidestep the rules of honorable combat. Meanwhile, Kukalun was wandering through the woods looking for more ways to terrorize Maeve's army when he came upon the stranger. This is nuts, he thought. What's an Ulsterman doing here so close to the invading army?
0: Yeah, for some reason he thought it was like someone from his side and not someone from Maeve's army. Maybe the guy was in an Ulsterman
1: outfit. We don't know.
0: Right. Maybe he was wearing the, the Ulster outfit. What is that? I'm not sure. but
1: I mean, that would actually make a lot of sense if he was scouting ahead for Maeve's army and trying to find out where Cucullin was. Of course, you'd put on the clothes that were native to that region. That makes total sense. I've solved it. It's okay. We don't need a wizard this time. We didn't need a wizard. Jen did it. I'm the wizard. But as Cucullin got closer, thinking maybe he'd warn the guy about this army over the ridge, the closer he got, the more he realized that this man was a charioteer from Maeve's army, and his master was nowhere to be seen. Quote, What are you doing here?
0: I'm getting chariot shafts. We smashed our chariots chasing that wild deer Cucullin. Help me out, would ya? Would you rather cut the shafts or do the trimming?
2: I'll do the trimming.
0: And then, under the charioteer's eye, he stripped the holly shafts through his clutched fist, paring them clean, knot and bark. The charioteer freaked out, Who are
1: you? Ka! Kukulin, said Kukulin, surprising no one. Seeing how freaked out the charioteer was, he said, I have no quarrel with
2: charioteers.
0: He then went and found the charioteer's master, killed that guy, cut off his head, and brandished it at the approaching army.
1: Raw! here's a head (laughs) Cucullin tied the head to the charioteer's back and told him to keep it there all the way back to camp or else the charioteer rushed back as fast as he could and Queen Maeve met him just outside the camp he explained to her what had happened finishing with quote and then he told me that if I didn't take it on my back all the way to the camp he'd break my head with the stone and then the charioteer took the head off his back to show her and of course Cucullin was a man of his word he sent some sleep stones whistling through the air, breaking the man's head and splattering his brains everywhere.
0: Yeah, because he can't go back on his word.
1: No, he gave you one simple thing to do. He didn't want to split your head open with the sling stone.
0: You know what, charioteer guy? You had one job, and that one job was don't take the head off until you get into the camp
1: wasn't difficult. Cucullin's harassment by Slingstone got more intense after that. He started exploding the heads of anyone who talked smack about him in Maeve's army, including Maeve and Aleel's own sons. They had seven and they were all named Maine and referred to as the Maine because that is so great. And, you know, also seven because no matter how many times Cucullin killed them, there was somehow seven of them. A wizard did it. Maybe they're rabbits.
0: It's entirely possible whenever we talk about Maeve and Aleel, picture rabbits.
1: And Maeve and alil had a lot of pets. They were animals. People and Kukulin targeted those as well. So Kukulin took the head of Maeve's dog because he's a dick with a sling stone when she was out just walking the dog, not looking for a fight. And he picked her prize squirrel off her shoulder with another stone and he killed it because nothing good can last in the ancient world.
0: Because Kukulin is not an animal person. I mean, I think we've shown this with the dog story. She had a little squirrel that she tamed with some acorns and he killed it. He was just doing his job. I guess he's become the hound of Cullen. He's He's just doing his job. And we've come full circle. So, meanwhile, Kukulun also started targeting Maeve herself with his sling stones, and it got so bad that she couldn't leave her tent, except with a crowd of guards holding barrel-shaped shields over her head. Kukulun even killed one of her maids by accident, thinking it was her. Maeve tried to restore her army's confidence, saying that Kukulun only had one body, he could be wounded just like anyone else, but she had nastier ways to get her own back. Like sending her army out to lay waste to the countryside, burning up crops and villages, and rounding up women, children, and cattle for food and slaves. She made sure that as long as Cucullin made her army sit still, the land suffered. But Maeve also had another problem. Chulainn had killed so many of her named heroes that they were now refusing to fight him at the fords. So she pulled out her secret weapon, her daughter Finnebert. The Welsh version of this name is actually Guinevere. Finnebert was exceptionally beautiful, completely untouchable because she was the daughter of the king and queen, and Maeve started offering her around. She offered the girl's hand in marriage to warrior after warrior to persuade them all to fight Chulainn, and there were a lot of takers.
1: And this was, of course, reprehensible. But Maeve wasn't above doing this herself as well. It was how she'd kept Fergus, Cacullin's foster dad, loyal by carrying on a quote unquote secret affair with him. Actually, a knew and approved of this affair up until a point.
0: There's a whole thing where he gets super jealous later, but it's like way after the fact. And at the moment, he's like, yeah, it's fine. She's doing what she has to do.
1: Exactly. And, you know, Maeve probably had some magic lady bits.
0: I think all signs point to a magic V.
1: Kukalan fought warrior after warrior. Some of these were men that he knew. Many had trained with him at Skatakh's school. Meanwhile, the landscape was starting to dissolve into a deserted wasteland because as much as he fought to slow the army, K'Kal'in couldn't actually stop it from ravaging his homeland. And one day, as he wandered the burned-out glens and blood-choked rivers of his homeland, a young, beautiful woman came to him. Quote, Who are you?
0: I'm King Buon's daughter, and I have brought you my treasure and cattle. I love you because of the great tales I have heard.
2: You come at a bad time. keep going warp spasm voice we no longer flourish here but famish i can't attend to a woman during a struggle like this But I might be a help. It wasn't for a woman's backside that I took this ordeal. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I just... Oh, Cuckoo, and why?
0: Because that's how he talks, okay? <laughs> <laughs> then I'll hinder. When you're busiest in the fight, I'll come against you. I'll get under your feet in the sheep of an eel and trip you in the ford. I'll
2: catch you and crack your eel's ribs with my toes. And you'll carry that mark forever, unless I lift it from you with a blessing.
0: I'll come in the shape of a gray she-wolf to stampede the beasts in the fort against you.
2: Then I'll hurl a slingstone at you and burst the eye from your head, and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you with a
0: blessing. I'll come before you in the shape of a hornless red heifer and lead the cattle herd to trample you in the waters by ford and pool and you won't know me.
2: Then I'll hurl a stone at you and shatter your leg and you'll carry that mark forever unless I lift it from you with a blessing.
1: Then she left him. After that, things started to go really, really wrong. Because you know what? You don't turn down the morgan without consequences.
0: Cucullin was fighting a warrior named Loch in a ford, and an eel tangled itself in his legs. Cucullin stomped on the eel and broke its ribs, but Loch got the chance to wound him terribly in the side. Then a she-wolf turned a herd of cattle to trample him in the ford, and Cucullin burst her eye with his slingstone. But the cattle churned up the water all around him so badly he couldn't tell if he was drowning, and he spotted the hornless red heifer and broke her legs with two well-aimed slingstones. The cattle trampled off, I guess except for the one with its legs broken. But the warrior Locke fought him fiercely and Cúchulain just barely managed to kill him. Exhausted and wounded, Cúchulain dragged himself out of the ford. It was there he saw an old woman with a busted eye broken legs, and a bloody head, milking a three-titted cow, and he knew immediately who she was. Cuchulain asked her for a drink, and she gave him milk from the cow's first nipple. He wished her good health as he drank, and her eye healed itself before his eyes. She gave him milk from the cow's second nipple, and Cuchulain blessed her and healed her head. Then he drank from the third nipple, and his third blessing healed the woman's legs. "'You said you would never heal me,' said the Morrigan. "'If I had known it was you, I never would have done it,' Cuchulain said." From then on, the goddess of death followed Cuchulain closely. The Morrigan is actually a super interesting figure in Irish mythology. She's associated with war and death and prophecy, especially prophecy that has to do with death and doom. So you're sensing a theme here.
1: Yes! I love her so
0: much. Doom and death and doom! She's sometimes visually associated with crows, which makes sense because crows do show up to scavenge after a battle. I bet those ancient battlefields had a lot of crows and vultures on them. I bet it was like a really spooky environment.
1: Yeah, I bet anytime you saw like a large murder of crows, because that's what a group of crows is called, you would be like stay away from that area. Something bad must have happened there.
0: She's also sometimes depicted washing the blood-drenched clothes of those destined to die in battle so if you see the Morrigan washing your blood-stained shirt in a river, that is a sign that things are about to go really south for you personally. She and Vaka are sometimes believed to be the same goddess and she's also associated with banshees. Makes sense
1: because banshees are supposed to like cry out when is it the hour of your death or around when you're going to die or a loved one's going to die. You can hear their calls?
0: Yeah, it's a scream of impending doom, I
1: think. I think so. a 100% on Banshees.
0: So, the rules of honorable combat were starting to break down. Maeve asked for a truce and a meeting. Cuchulain granted it, and then she set up an ambush. He fought his way out of it, of course. Over and over, Maeve sent hundreds of men against him at once, abandoning the rules of honorable single combat, and he slew them all. Then she sent her daughter, Finnebear, promising him that he could have the girl if he would back off. A double cross was, of course, planned. Cuchulain cut Finnebert's hair and thrust a pillar stone under her clothes, and there's a whole thing about a dwarf who he wound up killing who was with her or something. It's a whole weird story. I don't really understand what's happening here, but she wasn't physically hurt except her hair was cut. Maeve's people retrieved her, and no truces were offered or accepted after that.
1: It was night. Kukalan was snatching a few minutes of rest in the burned-out glens on the smoking earth when a man approached. He was blonde and beautiful, wearing a bright silver brooch and a rich silk tunic. He carried a five-pointed spear and a forked javelin. And he came performing feats and displays of astonishing skill. But no one paid attention to him. It was as if no one could see him.
0: I just want to make a point. The five-pointed spear and the forked javelin, the Hochdorf chieftain from the last episode had like a three-pronged dagger like that. The handle looked like a trident. This is like a high-status object that's sometimes found in these ancient Gallic graves and also other Celtic graves. But And you see it show up here. So the man said, this is a manly stand, Cuchulain. It isn't very much. So self-deprecating, warp spasm voice. The stranger
1: said his name was Luke, Cuchulain's real dad. This is real dad. It was his real dad. It was his first time he saw his real papa. Real, such a real dad moment. I know. He saw that Cacullin's wounds were heavy, and he promised to buy him the time to rest. For three days and three nights, Cacullin slept by a grave mound, and it was the first time he'd slept from Sawain when the summer goes to its rest until in bulk when the ewes are milked at spring's beginning. Quote, "...unless against his spear for an instant after the middle of the day, with head on fist and fist on spear, and the spear against his knee."
0: I just love that one quote because it's so realistic. I could just imagine any warrior in any army sleeping like that. So while Cuchulain was sleeping, the men of Ulster were still incapacitated with labor pains. It was down to Ulster's boy troop. They came streaming out of Avonvaca to defend their country, fighting heroically with toy javelins and shields and balls and hurly sticks. They managed to delay the Connaught host for three days before all but one was slaughtered. The boy troop, Jen! Boy troop! When Cucullin awoke and heard that the boys had died, he flew into a rage. It was his worst warp spasm yet, with his face deformed and his body twisted and a fiery cloud rising out of his skull. The monstrous Cucullin leaped into his chest chariot and rose up after Maeve's army.
1: It was a great carnage. Quote, he mowed down great ramparts of his enemy's corpses, circling completely around the armies three times, attacking them in hatred. They fell soul to soul and neck to headless neck. So dense was the destruction. He left a bed of them six deep in a great circuit, the souls of three to the necks of three in a ring around the camp. This slaughter was given the name of the Sixfold Slaughter. Cucullin slew an unaccountable horde of dogs and horses, women and children and rabble of all kinds. Not one man in three escaped without his thigh bone or head or eye being smashed or without some blemish for the rest of his life. And when the battle was over, Cucullin left without a scratch or a stain on himself, his charioteer or either of his horses.
0: You know what this reminds me of, Jen? The uh, previous episode, do you remember that archaeological site where it was like this sort of weird trench or area where there were all these bones of different people who'd been killed, like animals and people, and none of them had any heads. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what this reminds me of. Go back and listen to that episode. Everything belongs to the brave. So Maeve started sending Cucullin's loved ones against him next. She sent Fergus, his foster father. He came unarmed. Cucullin said, You
2: must be under strong protection, Fergus, to come against me with no sword in your scabbard.
0: It would be all the same if I had a sword in it, Fergus said. I wouldn't use it on you. He asked Cuchulain to yield to him. Cuchulain said yes if Fergus would yield to him when he asked it. The men agreed and Fergus went home safely. Then Maeve sent for Ferdiad, who did not want to fight Cuchulain. Maeve sent bards and satirists to shame him for refusing. Shame, Ferdiad, shame! Still, Ferdiad refused. Finally, Finnebear got him drunk and seduced him in front of her parents. And that was apparently enough to do it. Maeve prom- Promised him Finnabare's hand if he would put Cucullin in the ground, and Ferdiad drunkenly agreed.
1: Of all the warriors in Maeve's army, Ferdiad was the closest to a match for Cucullan. He knew every move Cucullan knew, and he wore unbreakable armor. The two men met at a ford and started off the battle alternately, threatening to murder each other and begging the other to back down. Neither one wanted this fight, but neither one could turn away from it. Cucullan's homeland was at stake. For Ferdiad, what was at stake was his honor and position in society. And then, both of them utterly wrenched with grief and rage, they got to fight fighting their first moves were the feats skatok had taught them the apple feet the thunder feet the feats of the sword edge and the sloped shield the feats of the javelin and rope the salmon leap the snapping mouth and the hero's scream stepping on a lance in flight and straightening erect on its point but neither could beat the other.
0: They fought with spears, and they fought with swords. They fought on foot and from chariots. For two days, the battle raged, and at night, the two kissed and embraced and tended each other's wounds. Only on the last night did they not sleep by the same fire, because they both knew that one of them would not walk away the next day. When dawn came, they met at the river for the last time, and here's how it went. Quote, they fought together so closely that their heads touched at the top and their feet at the bottom and their hands in the middle around the edges and knobs of their shields. So, So closely they fought that their shields split and burst from rim to belly. So closely they fought that their spears bent and collapsed, worn out from the tips to the rivets. So closely they fought that their shield rims and sword hilts and spear shafts screamed like demons and devils and goblins of the glen and fiends of the air. So closely they fought that they drove the river off its course and out of its bed, leaving a dry space in the middle of the ford big enough for the last royal burial ground of a king or queen. Not a drop of water on it, except what the two heroes splashed there in their trampling
1: and finally Ferdiad struck Cuckolin a terrible blow. Blood gushed into the water. Cuckolin's warp spasm overcame him and his charioteer floated his secret weapon down the river toward him. The guy bolga seized up his spear in his foot and hurled it at his friend and lover, killing him where he stood. Terribly wounded and overcome with grief, Cuckolin carried Ferdiad out of the river and then fainted beside his body. And he would have just lay There, letting himself bleed out on the ground if his charioteer did not make him get up and escape. Only then, when Cucullin was near death and had killed the person in the army he cared the most about, did the men of Ulster rise from their labor pains to fight the last battle. Cucullin was so wounded that he sat most of it out. When he did rise again, it was only to confront his foster father Fergus at a strategic point in the battle, asking him to yield as he would promised. Fergus did, pulling his whole army out, leaving May Maeve's army exposed. With all her named heroes dead, Maeve didn't have the strength to keep standing alone against the full army of Ulster, so she had to retreat as well.
0: Maeve was guarding their retreat, fighting at a shield wall at the back of her army, when suddenly she got her period. She begged Fergus to take over command of the rear until she'd managed the situation, and the story says that her period blood dug, quote, three great channels in the ground. I guess she needed a heavy flow tampon. While she was dealing with her period, Kukulin broke through the shield wall, which was a really bad time. Kukulin maybe try a different time. And had Maeve at his mercy. Finally, these two intractable enemies met face to face. Spare me, said Maeve.
2: If I killed you dead, it would only be right.
0: But he didn't kill her because Cucullin refused to kill women all of a sudden, which surprised everybody. That was how the cattle raid ended. Maeve had lost a lot, many of her sons, hundreds of great heroes, and her daughter Finnebear. Finnebear's story was particularly tragic because, desperate for allies, Maeve had promised the girl to just about everyone, right and left. Finally, Finnebear got to choose Rashad, a Kana warrior she'd loved for a long time from a distance. Rashad had switched sides to go fight for Cucullin when Finnebear mentioned to her mom that actually she could I kind of like this one. Maeve sent Finnebear to go have a tryst with him and persuade him to come
1: back to their side. Finnebear slept with Rishad the first time she actually had sex with one of these men. When the news hit the other surviving men she'd been promised to, they did not take it well. Seven kings of Munster had all been promised Finnebear as a wife if they joined Maeve's army. The men all compared notes and found out that she'd been promised to all of them. They turned against Maeve and Alo. A great battle was fought. Over 700 men died when Finnebear heard that all these men had died on account of her, she died of shame. So that's how Maeve lost her daughter. She did, however, manage to get her hands on the bull she wanted. He took a mortal wound in battle with her husband's bull, who'd come with them in battle for no apparent reason, but he did. Her husband's bull also died of wounds it had sustained in the same battle. So in the end, neither one was richer than the other, which is the important thing, right guys? Cuckullen didn't die in the cattle raid of Cooley. When he did die, years later, due to some plotting by Maeve, he had himself tied to a standing stone, bleeding from mortal wounds so that he could continue to face his enemy on his feet. Only when the Morrigan perched on his shoulder did his enemies realize he was dead. The
0: cattle raid of Cooley might be a mythic tale, but at the core of it is something real, the way war debases people. As the meat grinder of this conflict churns on, both Cuchulain and Maeve stoop lower and lower. Maeve to trickery, Cuchulain to increasing brutality. The honor code breaks down. The hero is forced to turn his mythic strength against women, children, and people he loves in order to protect his homeland. Through Cuchulain's story, We learn more about the Celts of Northern Ireland, but we can also just maybe catch a glimpse of the Gauls. It's not just possible, it's likely, because so much of Cúchulain's story is corroborated in the archaeology of ancient Gaul and the accounts of ancient Greek and Roman writers. So there's so much here, Jen. I mean, the headhunting. There's so much headhunting in Gallic archaeology and also in this story. Yeah,
1: and the boasting and the storytelling... Yeah, the single combat and the stratified warrior culture. The chariots and the swords and weaponry. And the gold and the bling. Oh, such magpie want. I know. And the giant cauldrons filled with wine or mead and the drinking horns. Yeah, you saw that in the of Chieftain's
0: Grave. And the hero's portion. The hero's portion is a big one. Um, I don't think there was a hero's portion in this section, but we told the story about the hero's portion in the last episode. And definitely the raiding. I mean, because the Cattle Raid of Cooley is just a cattle raid blown up to epic proportions, Kakulan's story paints a picture of a world ruled by violence. It was a place where cattle raids could take on mythic proportions, where wars were fought over petty slights and a rigid code of honor prevented anyone from backing down from a fight, even if they desperately wanted to. It was a world where the Morrigan stalked the battlefield, black-winged and terrifying, a world where women and girls were often treated as chattel, but some seized their own power and even became leaders. Whatever else you might say about them. These people were epic. Imagine proud warrior queens leading armies into battle, towering warriors with lime-stiffened hair coming home with their enemies' heads tied to their chariots. Imagine them challenging each other to single combat at the fords, fighting to the death over the hero's portion, and worshipping their gods in whispering oak groves led by the mystical druids. Imagine a society of valiant warrior poets, fierce fighting women, and even children prepared to defend their homes to the death with anything to hand, toy spears, and hurling sticks included. They existed. They were real. And it's this culture that Julius Caesar collided with headlong in 58 BC. We will tell you all about it in the next episode.
1: That's it for this week. We'll see you in two weeks. You can find us on social, on Twitter, at Ancient Hist Fan, on Facebook and Instagram, at Ancient History Fangirl.
0: We're also on Patreon. We talked about this in the beginning of the episode, but it doesn't hurt to mention it again. One of the rewards you get when you join our Patreon at every level is that we shout out your name in the episode. Yeah, we do. Just FYI, if you signed up for our Patreon and it takes months to hear your name shouted out in an episode, that's because we do these way ahead of time.
1: We do. We're recording this episode in January and it will not reach your eardrums until March if my maths are correct. It might be April.
0: We have one person to shout out, and it's Megan Fisher-Hulbert. Thank you so much for signing up to our Patreon, and welcome.
1: Welcome. We really appreciate your support, all of your messages, all of your financial support. It all helps us bring you this podcast, and it lets us tell the stories that we love telling. And we're so incredibly grateful that you guys love to hear these stories, too. Just makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it?
0: It sure does. Thank you guys so much, and we will see you in two weeks.